I mean, David Foster Wallace has called this the asshole problem, the idea of trying to to uh, make yourself a character and and sort of have a critical depiction of a place or a nuanced depiction of the place without seeming like you're passing judgment on it. Sure. And yeah. So I, I think I was leaving myself open to be a jackass just to sort of say, dear reader, you know, I'm not perfect. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm this, this fool sometimes. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off topic. Today I share the first installment of a two-part episode about the Trans-Siberian Railroad across Russia, which is one of the most iconic overland journeys in the world of travel. Now, part two, which comes out tomorrow, covers the practicalities and nitty-gritty of what it's like to take the Trans-Siberian in 2018, while today's episode amounts to an audiobook of sorts that recounts my own experience of taking the Trans-Siberian for the first time when I was 28 years old. It really was one of the craziest experiences of my travel career for a variety of reasons, and I've had a lot of crazy travel experiences over the years. I actually wrote a 14,000-word story about it for Salon back when Salon still published travel stories, and I got a great response from readers. But while it was one of my favorite tales from my early travel writing career, for some reason, when I collected stories to put it into my second book, Marco Polo Didn't Go There, I left this trans-Siberian tale out of the book. Now, there's a specific reason why I did this. In retrospect, it's not a very good reason, but it involves a character who comes into the tale late in the journey in the city of St. Petersburg. So, after I'm done reading this crazy trans-Siberian tale, this episode ends with me talking a bit about the experience of writing the story and why this story didn't make it into my book. Now, if you've read Marco Polo Didn't Go There, you know that each of the stories in the book contains endnotes that describe how and why I wrote the story in question, and to help me unpack the story behind this Trans-Siberian tale, I invited writer and editor Jonathan Arlen to join the conversation. Jonathan is actually my featured guest in the next episode of this podcast, which drops tomorrow. I'll give him a proper introduction then. For now, just so that you know what you're in for, this audio essay is called On the Trans-Siberian Express. In addition to telling you what it's like to take the longest train ride in the world, it delves into the mystery of what happened to Genghis Khan's testicles. It details what happens when the train left me behind on the Russian-Mongolian border, and I had to hire a car to catch up with it. And after I've survived all that, it recounts a supernatural miracle involving wieners and rockabilly dancing while partying with librarians in the city of St. Petersburg. Let's listen in. On the Trans-Siberian Express, a journey in five parts, originally published in 1999. Part 1. Horse Races, Open Spaces, and the Fate of Genghis Khan's Balls The horse, which had collapsed 300 meters short of the finish line, was in its final spasms of death when a khaki-vested American stumbled up and started snapping pictures. Bearded and rotund, with gray-flecked hair and a bulky rack of photo equipment, he struck a vivid contrast to the Mongolians crowded in around him. Once he'd fired through an entire roll of film, he looked back at me sheepishly. Sorry to be so vulgar, he said, slurring his words a bit. This just looks like something that needs to be photographed. It's your world, I told him. Ten meters beyond the restraining cord, a white-frocked pair of Mongolian veterinarians jogged up to assess the scene. The horse's rider, an exhausted-looking ten-year-old with lather-slicked legs, stood by tearfully. Beyond the dying horse, the broad, grassy plain hummed with other child riders spurring their horses towards the finish line. 
Thousands of spectators crowded the final stretch for a half a mile in both directions, and thunderheads rumbled above, lending a grand, vaguely sinister air to the scene. I watched as one of the veterinarians plunged a syringe into the horse's throat. I normally wouldn't do this, the American said. It's all that Iraq that's making me take these photos. Iraq? Iraq, he said. Eric. Whatever, it's the Mongolian national drink. It's like Mexicans with tequila, only it's fermented with mare's milk, so it's like getting drunk on yogurt. Can't say that sounds too appealing. Well, Genghis Khan drank it every day, and he conquered the world. Yeah, right, kind of like Michael Jordan and Gatorade. The American smirked. Sure, he said, but don't say that too loud. People take Genghis Khan really seriously around here. They sort of see him as this combination between, like, Jesus and Napoleon and Tarzan. He's the father of their country. Sure, I said, like the Mongolian George Washington. Yeah, but Genghis Khan pretty much takes George Washington and makes him look like a wig-wearing sissy, doesn't he? The bearded American paused and leaned in confidentially. But then George Washington isn't the one who got his balls cut off. For a moment, I forgot about the dying horse. What do you mean Genghis Khan had his balls cut off? I mean Genghis Khan had his balls cut right off. Common knowledge... I've never heard that in my life, I said. Who cut his balls off? I think one of his concubines done it. Kind of like a Lorena Bobbitt thing. I don't know the details, I just know that it's a fact. Uh, if you don't believe me, ask around. Someone here is bound to know the whole story. On the hoof-trampled plain in front of us, the horse had stopped its spasms. The veterinarians waved in a front-end loader, which rumbled up and unceremoniously plunked the dead horse into a big Russian garbage truck. Unable to resist, the bearded photographer loaded another roll of film and jogged off to capture the best angle. After watching the garbage truck drive off with the stiffening horse in the back, it was several hours before I could shake the macabre image from my mind. The mysterious question of Genghis Khan's missing testicles, on the other hand, nagged me for weeks. Though it makes for a wonderfully novel experience, traveling to Ulaanbaatar during the annual Nadam Festival is probably not the best way to experience Mongolia's capital. Granted, the grand ceremonies, day-long wrestling matches, and spectacular horse races are all inspiring sights, but as with New Orleans during Mardi Gras or Pamplona during the running of the Bulls, Nadam turns Ulaanbaatar into a cramped cosmopolis of careening tour buses and drunken amateur photographers. And given the unfettered excitement Nadam inspires in Mongolians, interaction with locals is as futile as trying to engage an American on Super Bowl Sunday. That I happen to be on Mongolia during Nadam is purely a coincidence. From the outset of my plans, Ulaanbaatar was simply the first of a number of stops that my cousin Dan and I had planned to take along a classic 5,280-mile rail trip from Beijing to St. Petersburg. Dan had come all the way to China from Kansas, where both of us grew up, to join me for a journey that we'd been planning for over a year. Our initial 30-hour ride into Ulaanbaatar from Beijing featured endless glimpses of the exotic, from fog-shrouded vistas of the Great Wall, to camels trotting in the Gobi Desert, to a huge set of hydraulic cranes at the Mongolia-China border that lifted each train car off the ground as the wheels were changed to fit the new track gauge. None of this, however, prepared us for the eccentricities we found in the windy, Soviet-styled streets of Ulaanbaatar. There, on drab urban avenues of Mongolia's capital, locals armed with Sony camcorders galloped on horseback through festival crowds. 
Three dozen Scottish Boy Scouts in town for a service project posed in their kilts near the Mongolian Hunting Trophy Museum, which, according to a report in the tourist newspaper, features, quote, amazing, unbelievable, big and nice trophies of ibex, elk, and rose deer, end quote. In the center of town, a half dozen different documentary crews prowled Sukhbatar Square, looking for something that looked Mongolian enough to put on film. Sneaker-shod locals rubbed shoulders with tourists bedecked in full Mongolian costumes. The Japanese prime minister was in town for a state visit, and his hundred-person entourage crept from event to event in a heavily guarded motorcade, looking impressive and ridiculous at the same time. English-language newspapers advertised gay and lesbian peer education workshops. The eight-lane Moncore bowling alley had just opened for business, and for the first time in festival history, Nottam wrestlers were being tested for performance-enhancing drugs. Apart from our tour guide and bus driver, the first true Mongolian I met in Ulaanbaatar was a guy called Mr. Blue. Though I chatted with Mr. Blue on a couple different occasions, the only vivid thing I remember from our conversations was his story about why camels' penises point backwards. Middle-aged and dressed in J. Crew-style casuals, Mr. Blue originally approached Dan and me at Sukhbatar Square, offering his services as a tour guide. Since we already had a guide, we declined. When I saw him the following day, we exchanged pleasantries, and this led to a conversation that rapidly moved to the topic of camel penises, a well-rehearsed shtick that's no doubt a part of Mr. Blue's daily routine. Apparently, not long after the world was created, God, or at least the Mongolian equivalent deity, realized that it was too troublesome to rebuild animals every time they died. Seizing on a brainstorm, God decided to redesign animals so that they could reproduce themselves. In a moment of inspiration, God manufactured a number of sexual organs and called the animals in to be fitted. One by one, the animals came in to claim their new appendages until every animal had a penis except the arrogant, dilly-dallying camel. When God called the camel in to claim the final penis, the camel decided he didn't like the looks of it and trotted off before God could attach it. Angered by the camel's insolence, God threw the penis at the camel and it attached backwards as it remains to this day. In retrospect, it's a shame we never hired Mr. Blue as our tour guide the day of the horse races. After all, he, as an apparent expert on genital-related Mongolian mythology, might have elaborated a bit on Genghis Khan's fate. My time in Ulaanbaatar was not entirely dominated by phallocentric yard spinning. In fact, much of my time in Mongolia was spent in the countryside, where, because accommodations in the city had long since been booked for the festival, Dan and I stayed in a gare, a traditional Mongolian felt tent, uh, in a campground with other members of our tour group. Many travelers don't care much for tour groups because organized tours tend to denarrate one's experience. Denarration, to borrow a word coined by Douglas Copeland, the novelist, is when one's experience ceases to contain elements of chance or drama or unexpected discovery. Thus, the problem some travelers have with tours is not that they aren't interesting or educational or enjoyable, but that the organized tours don't leave one with much of a story to tell. Somehow, lighting your long-stem Mongolian tobacco pipe with a glowing brick of cow dung loses its verb when you arrive at the nomad's tent in a Korean-made minibus. This in mind, my most vivid memory of the tourist camp comes not from the horse rides or the lamb stews, but from the time Dan and I skipped out on the planned activities and hiked into the smooth curves of the Mongolian landscape. Since there were no trees or fences or roads to guide or impede our way, we walked in a straight line towards the horizon for nearly two hours. 
Keeping a steady pace, we stopped only to examine the occasional dried cow skull or the odd piles of half-melted glass left behind by the nomads. Marmots peered out at us from the edge of their holes, wallowing in cuteness as if impassively waiting for someone to saunter up and nominate them for Olympic mascots. We eventually halted our hike at the crest of a rounded ridge and took a seat to stare out at the sloping sea of grass. Although most visitors to Mongolia rave about the humbling emptiness of the steppe, perhaps Kansans such as Dan and myself are best equipped to appreciate its beauty. As home to the largest contiguous stretch of virgin tall grass prairie left in North America, the aesthetic appeal of Kansas is like a simple folk tune that one learns to appreciate over the course of many seasons. Mongolia, on the other hand, has enough virgin grassland to swallow up the entire landmass of Kansas five times over. Taking in the Mongolian steppe is like looking at Kansas on steroids, a joyous Wagnerian symphony of blue sky, open spaces, and grassy curves stretching out to everywhere. All too often, as citizens of the information age, we draw our conclusions about the world by tracking the urban quirks and innovations that bring change to places like Mongolia. Visitors to Central Asia in the early 20th century spoke of such change when the head monk of the Mongolian Lamasery was said to have developed a taste for pornography, sunbathing, and firing his American-made shotgun. Historians later trumpeted change in the 1920s when the Communist Party seized control of a country that, as a subsistence-based nomad culture, had no workers to unite. The notion of change was reiterated by optimistic journalists in the 1950s when Chinese-made textile mills and Russian-sponsored chemical factories gave Ulaanbaatar a sense of urban bustle. These days, urban crime, internet cafes, and sports utility vehicles in the streets of the capital tempt me to recast Mongolia as a California in the making. But one afternoon in the enormity of the Mongolian steppe tempered my urge to generalize. The grassy expanse beyond the urban limits of the capital city hinted that, in the open spaces of the world, prehistory itself still holds a quiet upper hand on the noisy little parades of change. While in Mongolia, I never did find out what happened to Genghis Khan's balls. To be honest, I didn't really ask around much, since I feared broaching this topic with Mongolians might seem as crude and irrelevant as asking Christians how divinity affected the odor of Christ's bowel movements. Ultimately, my curiosity was sated in a distinctively denarrated manner, not by a wizened Mongolian hermit claiming to be descended from the Khan himself, or an Indiana Jones-style archaeologist leading an Ark of the Covenant-style quest for the dismembered gonads, but in a library miles away from the great Khan's domain. According to this legend, Genghis Khan was hunting one winter's day when he killed a rabbit in the snow. Noticing the striking contrast of the rabbit's blood on the snow's surface, he decided he wanted a woman so perfect and beautiful that her skin was as white as snow and her cheeks as red as fresh blood. The kingdom was searched, and such a woman was found, the new bride of the prince of Ulankota. On the threat of death, the prince handed his wife over to Mongolia's great warrior, but she, still faithful to her true love, entered the Khan's chambers with a knife hidden in the folds of her garment. When Genghis came to her that night, she responded to his advances by cutting off his genitals, then jumped to her death in a river. The great Khan, it is said, fell unconscious from the shock and never awakened. Dan and I left Ulaanbaatar the day after the Nadam closing ceremonies. As our train pulled out of the city, Mongolia's capital had already shifted to a quiet, sleepy place that in comparison to the kinetic colors of Nadam, almost made it seem abandoned. Within 12 hours of our departure from Ulaanbaatar, my cousin was still safely cruising on the train into the heart of Siberia. 
I, on the other hand, in a bizarre collusion of circumstances involving a Russian tank commander and two particularly unpleasant train providnitsas, somehow managed to strand myself and two of my cabin mates 250 miles from Ulaanbaatar at an obscure Russian border town called Naushki. Such was the luck that greeted the next leg of my trans-Siberian journey. Part 2. Stranded in Siberia For the first time in my life, I'd met someone who was genuinely excited that I was from Kansas. Kansas! the Russian tank officer exclaimed. Moskva! Yes, I grew up in Kansas, I said, and I'm, I'm headed to Moscow. Moskva, he continued, acting as if I didn't understand him. Kansas! He held out his hands and pressed his palms together. Unsure what to do, I smiled and mimicked his action, pressing my own hands together. Behind us, three old Soviet tanks sat, temporarily mothballed, in the rail yard of a Siberian-Mongolian border town called Naushki. Mark and James, my British cabin mates from the Trans-Siberian train, were clambering on the tanks, peering down the barrels and tugging on the hatches. The Russian officer, who was trying to communicate something about Kansas with Lassie-like persistence, paid no heed to my companion's informal tank inspection. Parlez-vous français? he asked, his palms still pressed together in front of him. Yet, I said, Hanguk Mahaleo? The tank officer gave me a blank look. I expected as much. My fractured Korean language skills had yet to help me in any international situation. Hey, James, I said. James paused and looked down at me from the turret of the middle tank. Don't you speak French? James, a multilingual 19-year-old from Hong Kong, hopped down from the turret and exchanged a bit of French with the Russian. The Russian gestured at me and waited expectantly. I'm not sure exactly what he wants to know, James said. His French is quite basic. Literally, he's asking me if you're from Moscow. He acts like it's a city in Kansas. Oh, Moscow, I said, suddenly realizing the connection. A tiny little Kansas farm town. God knows how he found out about it, but yeah, Moscow, Kansas. James looked at me uncertainly. So you're saying you're from Moscow, Kansas? No, no, I'm not from there, but I know of it. You know, they used to have a great eight-man football team. My Uncle Ed coaches the eight-man squad in a town called Leroy, and I still remember how Moscow beat Leroy in an eight-man state championship game about 20 years ago. Man, it was a real heartbreaker. I was just a little kid back then, but I really loved football. The Russian tank officer flashed the trademark grin of someone who is friendly and interested, but has no idea what the hell you're babbling about. James raised an eyebrow and paused, as if trying to decide whether the saga of Uncle Ed's 1979 football squad was really worth translating into French. Just then, Mark called to us from atop the tank. Hey, he said, leaping down to the gravel at the edge of the tracks. I just remembered that we're not on Ulaanbaatar time anymore. That means it's 3.45, not 2.45. If the train leaves at 4, like the Provodnitsa said, we'd better go back right now. Hastily bidding the Russian soldier farewell, James and I jogged after Mark as he led us out of the shunting yard. We arrived at the main Naushki station to find it completely, unambiguously, empty. Mark, James, and I checked our watches in unison. Even with the hour time difference, it was still only 3.50. Mark broke our stunned silence by stating the obvious, The train is gone. Since it had been my idea to hike out and look at the Soviet tanks while the train was stopped, I figured it was my job to assuage everyone's fears. The only way to do this, of course, was to blatantly deny reality. We still have ten minutes, I said. It can't be gone. We'll be fine. James and Mark didn't say anything to this, and that said it all. 
Barely 1,000 miles into my 5,280-mile train trip from Beijing to St. Petersburg, there was no real point in denying that I had somehow managed to get us left behind by the train itself. Siberia, as Frederick Kemp observed in his eponymous 1992 book, has always been more of a warning than a place. Of all the locations in the world to be stranded, few places can match the desolation and hopelessness conjured by Russia's enormous eastern reaches. European maps from Marco Polo's day, which list Russia proper as a region of darkness, reveal an apocalyptic bent to the earliest Western perceptions of Siberia. Gog and Magog, reads the Siberian portion of a 14th century Catalan map, the great prince of these shall come forth with a great multitude in the day of the Antichrist. Though the biblical nomenclature never stuck, Siberia's reputation hasn't improved that much in the last 600 or so years. To this day, Siberia is seen as little more than a blank space populated by exiles and Cossacks and criminals, a cold stretch of trackless forest, man-eating tigers, and frozen tundra. Mark, James, and I were fully aware of this reputation when we found ourselves stranded on the Siberian frontier. Trying to stay calm, we went to the Nausheed station office for information on the next train. The station officer was a kindly-faced man with gray hair and a Soviet-style green cap. Unfortunately, he didn't understand a single word we were saying even after 10 minutes of pantomime. James tried French, Spanish, German, Mandarin, and Cantonese on him, all to no avail. Half-heartedly and unsuccessfully, I threw out a few phrases of Korean. The station officer grinned and spoke to us in very loud, slow Russian, repeating the same phrase again and again. The three of us stood there befuddled. He's trying to say that your train left at 3.15, a voice came from behind us. Turning around, I saw a college-aged Mongolian girl walking up behind us. She couldn't have been an inch over four feet ten, and she chomped her gum with an energetic confidence. I'm Monica, she said. You all are trying to speak English, right? Yes, as a matter of fact, I said. We were beginning to think that nobody from this town would be able to help us. Oh, I don't live here, she said, rolling her eyes. I just come here sometimes to make money. It's my job to be a person who does things for people, you know what I mean? James and I raised our eyebrows at each other. You know, I take things to places for people, she said, impatient with our cluelessness. I forget it in English. You know, I take Chinese things to Mongolia to sell in Russia. Oh, right, Mark said. You're a business person, a a trader. Monica chomped on her gum. No, not exactly. I mean, close, but not exactly. You're kind of a courier, I said. You're a supplier. Monica brightened suddenly. Smuggler, she said. I'm a smuggler. That's my job. Monica grinned proudly at her verbal precision. Mark, James, and I raised our eyebrows again. Obviously, Monica had no use for euphemistic English. We need to catch up with our train, Mark said. Are there any other trains this afternoon? Not until tomorrow, she said. Mark sighed. Well, I guess we'll have to wait here then. What are you, stupid, she said. Nobody stays here. This is no place. Just hire a car and catch up with the train. No problem. A car, I said. You mean there's a highway out here? Of course there's a highway. Where do you think you are, anyway? The North Pole? You can be at Ulan Day in a couple of hours. Is that soon enough to catch the train? Sure, if you drive fast. Monica abruptly turned and started to walk out of the station office. Wait, I called after her. We need you to help us hire a car. Monica turned and rolled her eyes. That's what I'm doing, stupid. The taxis are this way. She paused and looked at us for a moment, kneading the gum between her teeth. Unless you are really serious about staying the night in Nauschke. All at once, the three of us lurched after Monica. Naushki is a Russian-Mongolian border town so functional and artless that it doesn't even have its own history. 
Early written accounts of Siberia make no mention of the town because it was overshadowed by the bustling tea caravan outpost in neighboring Kyatka. Kyatka's prominence eventually faded when train transport rendered the classic China-Russia tea caravans obsolete, but Naushki, which took over as the train stop, never managed to live up to Kyatka's memory. Since Naushki is the first Russian outpost on the northbound route from Mongolia, Trans-Siberian passengers typically get a couple of hours to wander the town while the train is being inspected for contraband and stowaways. Assured by the carriage Provodnitsa that the train wouldn't leave Naushki until 4 o'clock, I had walked through the town at a leisurely pace, going where my curiosity took me. At first glance, Naushki's creosote wood houses and dust-piled sidewalks made the place seem as dismal as a Nevada ghost town, but the more I walked, the more I noticed a kind of poignant optimism to Naushki. Three roads out from the train tracks, I found an old children's playground that featured a sandbox designed to look like a tugboat, a big wooden Fabergé egg that kids could climb on, and a small stage for dramatic productions. Once painted in bright primary colors, the playground equipment was now faded to a dry wooden gray that matched the other buildings of Naushki. There were no kids there. Looping back towards the train tracks, I found a whitewashed, red-starred cement memorial to locals who'd perished in World War II. The face of the monument was only half full of names, as if Naushki was optimistically hoping to provide casualties for some future great cause. Bordering the train station, the concrete statues in Naushki Civic Park revealed a similar lack of history. Instead of lauding local heroes, the statues in the park depicted small children dancing, a wild moose, and a mother nursing a child. Once upon a time, perhaps, Naushki was looking forward to something. Maybe it still is. Perhaps, even though the statue children are dancing on thin rebar legs and the moose's face has fallen off, looking forward is all there is to do in Naushki. By the time I'd retraced my way past the park with Monica, however, the only thing I was looking forward to was getting out of Naushki. When we arrived at the parking lot, Monica presented us with two hired driver options, Egon and Ivan. Egon looked like the bounty paper towel lumberjack and drove a beat-up lot of hatchback. Ivan looked like a young Joseph Stalin and drove a tidy four-door lot Both wanted 600 rubles, which is about $26, for the 180-mile ride to Ulan-Uday. Mark, James, and I voted for Egon purely on the basis that in, he in no way resembled Joseph Stalin. We paid him half the money up front. Monica gave him detailed instructions in Russian as we piled into his car. When she'd finished with Egon, she came around to the passenger window and gave us a pep talk. I just told him that you guys are in a real hurry and you can't stop for anything, she said. He needs to get some gas here in Naushki, but after that, don't let him stop the car. You have to be careful with these guys because you don't know what they'll try and do. W what do you mean? Do you mean they'll try and cheat us? No, no, I can't think of the English word exactly. It's worse than that. Rob, James offered. They'll try and rob us? No, but it's close. It's, it's an easy word. I really should remember it. Monica's verbal lapses were making me uneasy, but since she was our only asset at the time, I figured I'd better clarify. Maybe they'll do something like take us to the wrong place and ask for more money, I said. Kill, Monica said. Be careful or they'll try and kill you. Monica chumped on her gum and grinned. I don't think Egon would do that. He seems really nice. Just don't let him stop the car and you'll be safe. Monica waved goodbye. Egon started the car. We drove to the gas station in paranoid silence. 
1890, the writer Anton Chekhov wrote in a letter to his mother that the inhabitants of Siberia will, quote, bash in the head of a beggar they meet or gouge out the eyes of their fellow deportee, but they won't touch a traveler, end quote. As Egon took the nozzle and began to pump gas into his dented lada, we could only hope that Chekhov's 109-year-old observation still held true. Part 3, The Trans-Siberian Toilet War Though I'll never be able to prove it in a court of law, I will forever suspect that the reason train number 263 left me behind in Naushki, Siberia, had a lot to do with toilet etiquette. This is my only theory, aside from generic rancor, as to why the Provodnitsa encouraged me to return to Naushki Station at 4 for a train that left at 3.15. A Provodnitsa, as Russian rail veterans know, is the female attendant responsible for overseeing the passenger in a given train car. Formally, the duties of the Provodnitsa include taking tickets, vacuuming the berths, and attending to the upkeep of the toilets. On the surface, this seems like an innocuous enough job description until one realizes that in Siberia, these duties fall under an obsolete model of customer service. Years ago in the United States, service industry workers wore lapel buttons that said, the customer is always right. As far as I know, their employed-for-life Soviet counterparts were never required to display a customer service philosophy. But if they were, I'd suspect the buttons would have read something along the lines of, the fact that you exist annoys the hell out of me. Within the confines of train number 263 to Irkutsk, this old Soviet style of service reigned. It didn't help that the head Provodnitsa, who had the demeanor of a pit bull, looked like a breasty platinum blonde version of Boris Yeltsin, nor did it help that the assistant Provodnitsa looked like the female Stay Puft Marshmallow Man with sport stockings and a perpetually blank facial expression. For the most part, the melancholy Madame Stay Puft kept to herself, but La Femme Boris roamed the corridors with a petty ruthlessness that would have made Nurse Ratched come off like Kathy Lee Gifford. I soon realized that the meekest request to the head Provodnitsa, be it a tea bag or a roll of toilet paper, invariably resulted in a spittle-flecked Russian tirade so harsh that I eventually hid out in my cabin in an attempt to avoid her entirely. The problem with this isolationist strategy, of course, is that sooner or later, one has to go to the toilet. A quick look at the Ulaanbaatar-Irkutsk train timetable reveals a glaring inconsistency in the schedule. Whereas, say, the 100 miles from Ulaanbaatar to Zunkara is listed at a fairly reasonable three hours, the tiny 14-mile stretch from Sukhbatar, Mongolia to Naushki, Russia, weighs in at no less than 16 hours and 13 minutes. This is because the train arrives at Sukhbatar late at night, and the border customs station doesn't open until mid-morning. Unfortunately, my cabin mates and I never bothered to check the timetable while we were waiting at the border, and in what seemed like a good idea at the time, Dan, James, Mark, and I numbed the boredom of Sukhbatar by quaffing several bottles of Admiral Kolchak lager for breakfast. This was all great fun until we realized that the train toilets, which empty directly onto the tracks, are kept locked for sanitary reasons at all stops. We'd been allowed out of the train for pee breaks the night before, but since we were in the middle of a tedious customs process, we had no such luck in the morning. By noon, we were all prone in our berths, cradling our bladders in agony. When the train finally lurched into motion after the 15-hour wait, we stampeded for the toilet. La Femme Boris was there waiting for us, along with half the other passengers in our car. 
Since I don't understand Russian, I'm not sure what the Provodnitsa's rationale was for barring us from the toilets for the 14-mile transit into Russia, but her eyes, which were lit with the righteous fire found only in true prophets and petty bureaucrats, said it all. My companions pleaded with her in English, but I beat a path back down to the other end of the car. There the sad-faced Madame Stapuffed stood, keys in hand, in front of the small private lavatory reserved for the Provodnitsa's. Toilette, I employed, hoping she understood. The assistant Provodnitsa held a finger in front of her face. Nyet, she said somberly. Da, da, toilette. Nyet. Da, nyet. Da, I insisted, desperate. Before Madame Stapuffed could nyet me again, the lavatory door opened and a startled-looking Russian man stepped out. Seizing the moment, I sprang into the toilet, pulled the door shut, and locked the bolt. Madame Stapuff pounded on the lavatory door as I tremblingly dropped my pants and loosed the floodgates, her protests fading from my consciousness with each second I stood over the rattling metal bowl. Never before can I recall deriving such transcendent satisfaction from such a simple activity. Indeed, if God is in the details, then my triumphant moment in the lavatory was communion itself, a prosaic psalm humbly praising our Creator for dreaming up the urethra. Perhaps Madame Stay Puffed was livid when I emerged from the toilet, but I don't recall. I had emptied my bladder and been filled with the spirit. I walked back to my berth as blissful and impervious as Shadrach and Nebuchadnezzar's furnace. I noticed a stark contrast in my train cabin upon return. Dan and James occupied the bottom bunks, miserably coiled in defeatal positions. Mark, on the other hand, gave me a wink and grinned from the top bunk, nonchalantly swinging his legs back and forth. The Admiral Kolchak bottles, I noticed, were no longer empty. After completing the paperwork for the formalities of the Naushki stop, our train car emptied in a matter of seconds. Mark and I lolled in the cabin, giggling at the sight of Dan, James, and the rest of the train passengers sprinting for the Naushki station toilets. After a few minutes of congratulating each other on winning the Trans-Siberian Toilet Battle of 1999, Mark and I were interrupted by Madame Stapuffed. Standing imposedly outside our door, she gestured at us to leave. No worries, Mark said to her. We don't need to use the toilet. This gave us both a chuckle, but the assistant Provodnitsa just scowled and kept gesturing. Still giddy, Mark and I got up to leave. Let's just hope she doesn't steal any of our supply of cold, delicious Admiral Kolchak while we're gone, I said, to Mark's amusement as we walked down the corridor. La Femme Boris met us on the tracks as we climbed off the train. Back! Here! she barked, holding up four fingers. What, four o'clock? I said. The head Provodnitsa shoved her fingers under my nose and glared at me. Here, she replied. I guess she wants us back here at four then, Mark said. Exactly two hours later, not long after having inspected some old Soviet tanks with James, we returned to find the train gone. It was not a minute later than 3.50. The Trans-Siberian Toilet Battle of 1999, it appeared, had suddenly escalated into a war. By the time a small Mongolian woman named Monica had talked us into hiring a large Russian man named Egon to drive us to our Ulan Ude cutoff point, the train had been gone for nearly an hour and a half. Mark, James, and I sat in the Lada and pondered our odds as Egon filled the car with gas. I had the shotgun seat, the Brits shared the back seat. So are we in favor of this, Mark said suddenly. What do you mean, I said, we've already paid half the money. He's almost filled us up with gas. Of course we're in favor of it. I know, Mark said, but I just have a bad feeling about this all of a sudden. But Monica said she had a good feeling about this guy. 
Monica had a good feeling, but this is Russia, not bloody Kansas. For all we know, she's in on it. In on what, I said. In on a bullet in your head and mine. Russians think Westerners are filthy rich. Think about it. This is Siberia. Nobody's going to miss us if he drives us over to his mate's place and blows our brains out. That'll never happen, Mark. Says who? We're dealing with Russians here. I say we vote on whether to keep going with this guy. Mark, a normally confident 26-year-old graphic artist from England, was beginning to worry me. Somewhere I had read that 38% of all Russians live below a poverty line of $20 a month. The figures for Siberian Russians had to be even more dire. If Egon wanted to, he could indeed kill us and make a year's profit. But by that same logic, our $26 fare would certainly fill his coffers handsomely, and murder is not someone does on a whim, even in Siberia. Okay, I said. If you want to vote, I vote to have Egon drive us to Ulan-Uday. Well, I vote to quit now and pay for the next train, Mark said. I'm willing to cover all the money we've already paid out front. We'll look like a bunch of freaks if I do that, I protested. We'll look like freaks with bullets in our head, he said. Mark and I turned to our tiebreaker, James, a 19-year-old Hong Kong native on his way to London Law School. James silently looked at us, obviously uncomfortable at being the swing voter. Let's just go, he said, finally. I think we'll be fine. I have a bad feeling about this, Mark grumbled. Egon eventually returned to the car and we left Naushki. For the first 20 minutes, nobody uttered a word. I was just beginning to get comfortable with the silence when Mark piped up from the back seat. What did the driver just do, he said. I don't know, I replied. He threw something out the window. I think it was a cigarette. Yeah, it was probably a cigarette, so. So don't you think it's a little strange? He hadn't even smoked it. Well, I also saw him take a coin from the ashtray and throw it out the window, I said. Maybe he's just bored. He could be bored, Mark said, or maybe he's nervous. Nervous about what? I don't know. Well, then why worry, Mark? She's... I fell silent for a moment, knowing that I couldn't even be sure if we were headed in the right direction. All the road signs were lettered in Cyrillic, and for all I know, Egon was driving us to Vladivostok to sell us into slavery. So, James, I said, determined to diffuse my own creeping paranoia, what makes you want to study law? Fully aware of my own clumsy play at changing the subject, James took a long moment before answering. I'm not sure, he said, finally. I don't know if law is what I want to do, to be honest. Well, then what's your dream? What do you, where do you see yourself in a perfect future? I don't know, he said, but I do know I want to live in fantastic opulence. What, like uh, Hugh Hefner or something? Across from me, Egon had just put a fresh cigarette into his mouth. Not at all, James said. I mean opulence like the gardens of Versailles or the Tsarist winter palace at Peterhof. I want my riches to be excessive and baroque. It'd be impossible to zone a Versailles in the industrialized world, I said. As close as you'll get to that these days is to buy an island in the Caribbean. At this, Egon tossed his unlit cigarette at the window. Mark seemed about to snap. I told you I had a bad feeling about this, he said, his voice angry. Could you two please cut the chit-chat? Why, I said. I assure you the driver has better things to do than to kill us. I've only had this feeling two other times in my life, Rolf, Mark said. And? And what? What happened the other two times? Mark didn't reply to this, and James' face went black. It was a couple beats before I registered what had happened. Egon had just stopped the car. Monica's words rang in my head. Just don't let him stop the car and you'll be safe. I imagined Egon pulling a Glock out from under the driver's seat and blasting my brains all over the upholstery. No doubt Mark and James were thinking the exact same thing. 
Before any of us could react, however, Egon slammed the Lada into reverse. Backing us into a ditch, he put the car into gear, pointed the front end 45 degrees from the road, and sent us bumping across the field of dirt. As Egon began to arc back to the left, I noticed a look of terror in his eyes, and then it dawned on me. Egon was not going to kill us. Egon was taking us around a stretch of poorly marked road construction. Furthermore, Egon was afraid. What he was afraid of, I'm not exactly sure, but knowing Monica, I strongly suspect he was told that he wouldn't get the other half of his money if he ever stopped the car. Flooring the gas pedal across the dusty field, his face broke into relief as we bumped onto the blacktop. During his pioneering Arctic voyages of the early 1700s, Danish explorer Vitus Bering confessed that, quote, you never feel safe when you have to navigate in waters that are completely blank, end quote. Having seen Egon's moment of panic, my own companions and I emerged from the blankness. We had finally found a human indicator by which to navigate our own emotions. The issue of Egon's integrity was summarily dropped. Mark and I stopped making each other nervous, and we actually began to enjoy the ride. In a way, missing the train was a gift, since it allowed us to experience a part of Siberia few Westerners ever see. In the land beyond the tracks, Siberian life took on a sleepy pace amid dense taiga forests and along broad mountain basins. Dovetailed jointed log cabins sat at the roadside, their window shutters freshly painted sky blue. Long-haired girls in homemade dresses carried baskets across fields. Buryats, Siberia's original Asiatic inhabitants, roared past us on motorcycles. Concrete bunkers with heavy steel doors oil pipeline valve stations, roadside emergency shelters, nuclear war evacuation tunnels, I didn't know, appeared at six-mile intervals. Log cabin villages with wood-inspired Orthodox churches appeared in the river valleys. A brightly painted Buryat Buddhist shrine, still under construction, sat by the roadside. Ducks and herons frolicked near the rivers. A lone elk jogged across a distant hill. Egon said nothing the whole time, taking his eyes from the road only to toss cigarettes and Kopec coins out the window. We eventually deduced that he did this, perhaps in deference to local shamanist superstitions, only when he was passing another car or negotiating a dangerous mountain curve. We arrived at Ulanu Day just after 7 o'clock that evening, nearly four hours after our train had abandoned us at Naushki. Hastily handing a relieved-looking Egon the rest of his money, we rushed into Ulano Day Station to check the train schedule on the reader board. Train number 263, I noticed, was due to arrive at 1715 and depart at 1730. Perfect, I exclaimed. 1715, that means the train should be here in just a few more minutes. Mark and James stared at me without a trace of enthusiasm. 1715 means 515, James said quietly, not 715. The train left nearly two hours ago. Crestfallen and trembling with adrenaline withdrawal, the three of us walked into downtown Ulan Uday to change dollars into rubles and find something to eat. Ulan Uday, a Buryat regional capital of 400,000 souls, proved to be a colorful, bustling, ethnically diverse city. Vintage electric streetcars rattled down its avenues, western-style supermarkets graced its downtown, and a suburban airport promised a last-ditch sail-face method of catching up with our train. Since there seemed to be no other immediate choices, my companions and I bought some food, scattered some hotels, and returned to Ulan-Uday train station to inquire about the next train to Irkutsk. James, our language specialist, immediately went to work at the station information booth. The clerk spoke only Russian, but was able to direct him to a German-speaking army officer. We need to find the next train to Irkutsk, he said in German to the officer. 
James frowned at the officer's response and looked over at Mark and me. He says train 263 will come soon, but that doesn't make any sense. James turned back to the officer and pointed to the reader board. Train 263 left for Irkutsk four hours ago, he intoned in German. The Russian army officer laughed and gave a brief reply. Suddenly grinning, James looked at us and translated. All Russian train schedules run on Moscow time. Moscow is five time zones behind us. Our train won't be here for at least another hour and a half. Mark and I let out a whoop of relief that echoed off the insides of Ulan Ude Station. Part 4. The Great Railway Bazaar. That's B-I-Z-A-R-R-E Bazaar. The real reason most travel accounts of the Trans-Siberian train are so predictable and lifeless is that they lose their edge in an attempt to be earnest. While in the perfumed death grip of such optimistic sincerity, many a scribe has misled his readers with dandied visions of transcontinental reverie. Some wayward writers have committed this error by weaving the view from their train window into moony reflections about how, say, Russian literature changed their lives. Others have tried to capture the mood of the country itself by minutely analyzing everything, from broken English conversations with new Russian acquaintances, to whimsical interactions with the dining car staff, to any experience involving obligatory vodka shots. A few rail diarists, the desperate, try to validate their long hours on the train by bringing in marginally relevant trivia from the sites outside, how Tomsk is full of radioactive waste, for example, how Taishent was once a Stalin-era forwarding camp for Siberian exiles, how Perm is home to a bicycle factory, or how Krasnoyarsk churns out refrigerators and car tires. All of this is fine, but it falls far short of the train experience itself. This is because a train trip across Siberia takes a very, very, very long time and largely transpires in a small berth that rattles a lot, features fake wood paneling, and empties into a corridor full of antsy people who haven't bathed in days. If there's anything genuine to be communicated from this experience, it will certainly have little to do with the novels of Boris Pasternak, the cook's opinion of Yevgeny Primakov, or the dreadfully inefficient seesaw factories of Zwevka. Rather, if there is any revelation to be gleaned from spending several days on a single train, it will come from the bizarre details that lurk beneath the mundaneity of the trip itself. This is what I'd convinced myself, at least, when my cousin Dan and I boarded the Moscow-bound train at Irkutsk. After all, 81 hours on a train is a long time, and I didn't want 100 years of journalistic preconceptions to taint my experiences before they'd even happened. In January of 1899, the very first regular Trans-Siberian train service began to take passengers from European Russia to Irkutsk, known as the Paris of Siberia, a thriving university town that was home to all manner of exiles, from Decemberist nobles to Polish nationals to avowed anarchists. At the time, the completion of the railroad line was a triumph since it aided settlement to the region, consolidated Russia's eastern claims against China and Japan, and opened up Siberia's rich natural resources such as timber and gold and coal. Just ten years earlier, transportation conditions to the Russian Far East were so abysmal that it was actually faster to get from Vladivostok to Moscow by going east via the United States than it was to travel west across Russia itself. In the early days of the railroad, the Moscow-Irkutsk line often took over a week to complete, our 1999 timetable put the journey at about three and a half days. 
Since we'd traveled the first two legs out of Beijing and Ulaanbaatar in second class, Dan and I decided, for reasons of both comfort and curiosity, to splurge on a first-class upgrade for the Moscow-bound hall. At first blush, the environment of first class seemed like a mild disappointment, not because of the berths, which were clean and comfortable, or the provodnitsas, who were helpful and pleasant, but because of the company. When I'd first purchased the upgrade, I'd imagined my fellow first-class travelers to be spy novel grist, corpulent Russian mob types with anorexic supermodel girlfriends, snooty French diplomats with snarling lapdogs, bespectacled English ethnologists with fascinating tales about the Finno-Urgic Udmurts of the Siberian plain. In reality, our first-class car was mostly populated with elder hostel tourists from places like Minneapolis and Tempe. As it happened, these folks would prove to be far more baffling and contradictory than a train full of spies or diplomats or mobsters. The first hint of my elderly trainmate's dual nature came just five hours into the trip when my neighbor from two doors down, a 72-year-old man from California, suddenly rushed past me in the corridor. Since he'd always made a habit of chatting me up, I peered over to watch as, ignoring me entirely, he took a hard right into a cabin full of his bridge-playing cohorts. This place is like the Bermuda Triangle, I heard him announce. What do you mean the Bermuda Triangle, came a voice from inside the cabin. I mean, I just saw a Russian guy wearing a shirt that said California. So how does that make this the Bermuda Triangle? Well, because it's just kind of strange, you know, a Russian guy wearing a shirt that says California. I think you're thinking about the Twilight Zone, a third voice pointed out. The Bermuda Triangle is where ships and airplanes disappear. The Twilight Zone is where funny things happen. I didn't say it was funny to see a Russian wearing a California shirt. I said it was strange. The Twilight Zone isn't funny, haha. It's funny, strange. The Bermuda Triangle isn't funny at all. It's where planes and ships disappear. A fourth voice piped in with a phony John Wayne drawl. Yeah, and this game's gonna disappear if you don't shut the door and shut your face and play your hand. Haha, ha, and that's no joke. I swear, we have to wait 20 minutes every time you go down the hall and smell the roses. As the door slid shut and the corridor fell silent, I stood in amazement. My septuagenarian neighbors, who had always spoken to me with the friendly, half-interested cadence of people who'd been making small talk since the Great Depression, were babbling at each other like a bunch of bud-smoking, low-culture referencing Gen X channel surfers. Inspired, I spent the rest of the trip subtly trying to engage my elderly acquaintances with good-natured sarcasm and reflexive irony, but it simply didn't work. Regardless of what I said, they would always steer our conversation back to weather patterns, relatives who once lived near my hometown, or the newfangled wonders of Gore-Tex. I spent my time in first class feeling like an anthropologist who can't learn the primitive tribal customs because the natives thinks it's more seemly to speak to him in Shakespearean English. Not long into the trip, my cousin Dan and I fell into a listless first-class routine that revolved around reading, drinking tea, staring out the cabin window, and aimlessly wandering the corridors. In time, I would take an adventure into the third-class car, but I never even considered that option until late in the trip. Despite my best efforts to get caught up in the romance of trans-Siberian transit, I found that feelings of reverie only sustained themselves in very short doses. That left me with a lot of downtime. On an 81-hour trip, downtime adds up. Thus, aside from my geriatric neighbors and a few books, the closest thing I had to moment-by-moment -moment entertainment came when Dan would fall asleep for 15 minutes and then wake up and tell me what he had just dreamt. I was getting ready to climb Mount Everest with you and some hippie mountaineer, Dan said after falling asleep and waking up midway through our second day on the train. 
I was having trouble tightening my boots because I was wearing those pantyhose-thin gold-toe socks. I was also worried that I'd forgotten to bring warm clothes, and the road we took to base camp looked a lot like US-59 as it goes through Garnett, Kansas. An Everest dream, I told him. That must mean something. Yeah, maybe, but Everest seemed to start at the upper limit of a hallway wall, and as you and the hippie were ice-axing your way up the glacier, your safety ropes were coiled on this short, gray industrial carpeting. I thought to myself, shit, I've never used technical climbing equipment before, but Everest seems to be indoors. I mean, how hard can it be? Well, did you try it then? Eh, I didn't get the chance. I woke up before I could try. The last thing I remember is how commercially extreme you and the hippie looked as you climbed Mount Everest in blowing snow and fluorescent lighting. Nice, I said. Very weird. You should fall asleep more often. Dan and I occupied a berth that, while comfortable, was a far cry from the proposed first-class cabins of the original Trans-Siberian train. During the Paris World's Fair of 1900, the Russian government promoted its recent Trans-Siberian engineering feat with an exhibition that promised libraries, music rooms, gymnasiums, and marble-trimmed bathtubs in the first-class cars. A century later, the closest first class came to a marble bathtub was an aluminum wash basin, and the nearest feature to a music room was a crackling cabin speaker that continuously played eclectica, ranging from Stravinsky's Firebird to Shadow Dancing by the Bee Gees. I spent much of my cabin time looking out at the Siberian landscape. Beyond the train tracks, coniferous taiga forests clotted the flat landscape, and small stands of birch stood out like white matchsticks on the horizon. In the open spaces, rounded piles of hay sat in vivid blue-green fields. Purple dappled meadows draped the valleys. Country people haunted bogs and pastures, men in blue overalls clutching wooden pitchforks, girls in blue dresses picking vegetables, boys in blue hats wading waist-deep in muddy ditches. Trackside cemeteries sat behind sky-blue iron fences, their colorful garlands and bleached headstones fading back into the trees, giving the illusion that the graves stretch under the taiga all the way up to the Arctic. These sights changed only slightly as the miles wore on. Sometimes for variety, I would turn from the window and watch the landscape reflect off my cabin walls, jumping and jittering across the plastic wood grain like a blurry 1940s movie newsreel. The folks from the Elder Hostel tour occasionally dropped by my cabin for a chat, but they were most visible and boisterous just before station stops. In anticipations of these brief platform breaks, our neighbors would set aside their embroideries and bridge games and crowd their way towards the corridor exit. Listening to them chatter as they shuffled by my door was like flipping through UHF television channels. I didn't know Cheryl Teagues was 50. She's well-preserved, isn't she? They're selling jawbreakers on the platform, ha ha. It was a man's wool bathing suit that I inherited, and it was all wool. Well, you fill your pelvis up with air, and then your stomach, and then your throat, and breathe out for five minutes, then it's gone. Look at me, I decided I didn't want to look like a tourist out there. You need to watch out for gangrene, ha ha. I smell a fish, let's buy a fish. Ha ha, he said he was going to buy a fish. I'm going to do it, I'm going to buy a fish and give it to her. If you give me a fish, I'll give you a divorce. If we get a divorce, I'm going to make you keep the fish. Ha ha. Look at him. That crazy son of a bitch is really going to go off and buy a fish. At each station stop of over two minutes, the entire Elder Hostel crew would dash out of the car the moment the Provodnitsa let down the carriage steps and then hustle back a few moments later clutching sausages and handmade scarves and bottles of black market vodka and fresh vegetables. By comparison, Dan and I must have seemed like a couple of complete fuddy-duddies. 
Not wanting to feel like a total layabout, I hiked down to the dining car each evening to have dinner with my old castaway buddies Mark and James, who were enduring this leg of the trip in second class. Admittedly, the camaraderie was more of a motivating factor than the food. Ugh, this beefsteak tastes like beef-flavored washcloth, I complained over dinner our second night. Mark and James grimaced in sympathy, unenthusiastically chewing their own beefsteaks. That's your mistake, said a youngish Russian guy at the next table over. You got beef. You should have gotten omul. Siberia is famous for it. Omul? I didn't see it on the menu. It's not on the menu, but this train always has it. It's a fish. It's a cousin to salmon. You can only find it in Lake Baikal. It cries like a baby when the fishermen catch it, and you can eat it salted. It's really good. Thanks for the tip, I said. Your English sounds great, by the way. Very natural. Thanks, the Russian said. My name's Alexei. I studied in California, and now I work for Gillette. You know, the best a man can get. Today I'm taking the slow road to Novosibirsk. Are you here for work also? Nah, just for fun. Fun? On this train? I think maybe you're a little crazy. It's a classic trip, I said. An adventure. Alexei scoffed. This isn't an adventure. You need to try something extreme. Take a ride in a MiG fighter or parachute from a helicopter or go rock climbing in Kamchatka. That's what tourists do for fun in Russia these days. Train rides are for old-fashioned people. The Trans-Siberian is like the Russian version of going across America in a convertible, I insisted. It's an adventure. It's not extreme, but it's still an adventure. It's not really an adventure, he said. The only way to get an adventure on this train is to go to third class. Why? What's in third class? Alexei smiled at me. Just go there. You'll find out. The next morning, having nothing better to do, I did just that. The first thing I remember about third class was the blast of dank air as I walked in. A paint-blistering concoction of feet and armpits, alcohol and urine, cigarette butts and butt crack. Fifty-four people had been crammed into an open bunk room. The whole carriage looked like something out of an absurd murder mystery. Men in their pajamas, pressing transistor radios to their ears. Small girls singing to themselves in sweet high voices. Small boys clutching packs of cigarettes. Large women with stainless steel teeth. Oily-faced teens in tracksuits. Two enormous, unshaven men passed out on the same bed. I breathed through my mouth as I made my way down the carriage, trying to act casual. When I got to the end of the carriage, I realized that I had no real third-class visitation strategy. Halfway back across the carriage, a voice called to me in English. Hey, you! I looked over to see a balding, round-faced man of about 40 smiling at me. He was obviously very proud of his English skills, and he spoke rather loudly. Where are you from? he shouted. Uh, the United States, I said, thankful that if nothing else, this interaction was validating my trip to third class. The man translated loudly, America! A dozen or so people turned around to listen in. What do you think of Beverly Hills? The balding man asked, still smiling. For some reason, I couldn't think of an intelligent-sounding way to answer this question. Um, it's very nice, I said. Lots of rich people live there. What do you think of China? Uh, it's a nice place, I said. Lots of people. Under normal circumstances, I'd have been boring these people to death, but after two days in steerage, it appeared as if I was something of a featured attraction. What do you think of Russia? Uh, very nice, very interesting, I said. There were a few nods, a few sarcastic groans. What, what means fuck you? Uh, that's a bad word, you probably shouldn't use it. The balding man translated, and the peanut gallery frowned and nodded. What do you think of Russian women? Now, experience overseas had conditioned me to answer this question in a bland and positive way that neither interests potential pimps nor irritates territorial pissers. Uh, Russian women are very nice and pretty, I said. 
For some reason, everyone thought this answer was really funny. Giggling, the balding man pointed to a girl of about 14 years old whose rear end was hanging out the bottom of an extremely short pair of pants. What do you think of this woman, he yelled. Not sure what the fuss is about, I decided to stay with my stock line. Uh, She seems very nice and pretty. My translated answer resulted in pandemonium. The girl's face went red and her mother tried to wrestle her over to me. Old women screamed like teenagers, old men howled with laughter. A bottle of vodka appeared out of nowhere. You stay here, the balding man shouted joyously, taking the vodka and looking around for a cup. Maybe you kiss her later. He immediately translated this witticism, much to the delight of the peanut gallery. Standing there, peering around, I had no idea what was going on. I knew that I had been in the third-class carriage for ten minutes. I knew that this ten minutes was already more interesting than the previous twenty-four hours put together, and I knew that I didn't want to stay a moment longer. Now, under the inspirational moral standards set by movies like Titanic and Dead Poets Society, I probably should have stuck around and tried to enjoy myself or learn something. The thing is, I didn't really want to seize the day or frolic in steerage. I didn't want to get drunk on vodka or learn Russian profanities or suck face with a Slavic Lolita in ass pants. The insipid calm of first class, it seemed, had irreversibly jaded me, and I longed for eventlessness. Making my excuses, I fled the third class carriage. Walking into the first class corridor, I wasn't sure if I'd met Alexei's challenge of adventure, and I didn't care. If two listless days in first class had taught me anything, it had taught me to crave more listlessness. Returning to my cabin, I was encouraged to find my cousin bleary-eyed from sleep. Did you take another nap, I asked? Uh, Yeah, I guess I did. Did you dream? Dan furrowed his brow, thinking for a moment. I dreamt of a koala bear. Oh yeah? What did it do? Uh, It didn't do anything. It was just sitting in a male zookeeper's arms. It was wearing a little white tuxedo with a glove on its forepaw, which was ever so gently grasping the zookeeper's arm hair. And that was it? My cousin shrugged. That was it. For all practical purposes, my trip to Moscow ended not in Yaroslavl Station, but on my fourth morning on the train, when I woke up early to sit in the dining car and record sights in my journal. Water tower like a sentinel, trackside, I wrote, gazing outside. Collapsed sawmills next to standing trees. Piles of iron. Where do these come from? Birch trees like matchsticks. Stopping for a moment, I flipped back several pages in my notebook. Birch trees like white matchsticks on the horizon, an earlier entry read. I flipped back a few more pages and found more birch tree matchstick analogies right next to an entry that compared water towers to sentinels. Putting my pen down, I reread my journal. In three days, I had made eight separate references to collapsed buildings and five references to faded or broken communist murals or symbols. I'd used the word sentinel four separate times to describe three separate things. For the last 3,000 journal miles, the taiga had never stopped being, quote, endless, the birch trees had consistently been, quote, like matchsticks, and the decaying, quote, vestiges of Soviet society, end quote, had never ceased to be ironical. As I sat and reflected on my own redundancies, a foursome from the elder hostel tour came in and sat at the far end of the dining car. They hadn't noticed me in my booth, and they were trapped in their own quirky, wonder-filled version of the train experience. Did you see that train worker lady when we were coming here, a voice said. She looked real classy, good bones and dark hair like Jackie O. Yeah, I saw her, came a reply. Too bad she doesn't work in our car. They should switch those people around after a couple days. A third voice. Hey, whatever happened to Jackie O Jr.? A fourth. What do you mean, Jackie O Jr.? 
Well, Jackie O's daughter, you know, not the train lady, the real Jackie O. Whatever happened to her daughter? Jackie O had a daughter? Of course she had a daughter. She had a daughter before she had a son, for Christ's sakes. What son? Her son, you dummy, JFK Jr. Wait, are you talking about Carolyn Kennedy? Yeah, that's her, Carolyn Kennedy. So where do you come off asking me about Jackie O Jr.? You're the damn dummy. Never you mind that. What happened to Carolyn Kennedy? Well, I don't know. Did you hear that something happened to her? I didn't mean it that way. I meant what happened to her? Where is she? What's she doing? Once my elderly train mates had solved the mystery of Carolyn Kennedy and moved on to talking about the deficiency of Russian tomato juice, I closed my notebook and put it into the bottom of my day pack. A few days later, the mad knights of Moscow and St. Petersburg would hasten the return of my journal, but at that moment, even with Moscow 400 miles away, I realized it was no longer of any use. Bidding the elder hostel crew good morning, I walked back to my cabin to see if my cousin had dreamed anything new. Part 5. A Sexy Librarian Named Natasha and Other Quirks of the New Russia Natasha was pale and thin-lipped, with an unruly shock of brown hair that she'd unsuccessfully tried to tame with bobby pins. She worked as a librarian at St. Petersburg University, and at the time, this seemed very exotic and sexy to me. Every time her friend Daniel would leave the balcony, I would kiss her, and she would kiss me back. Though we obviously weren't destined to be lovers, it was a nice way to pass the time. It was nearly four o'clock in the morning, and neither of us was sober. The problem with kissing Natasha was that as a librarian, she was overflowing with interesting factoids and observations about the universe. Since she didn't speak English, we had to stop kissing and summon Daniel every time a new epiphany struck her. Oiled, no doubt, by several hours of drinking and dancing, her epiphanies came at the rate of about one every 90 seconds. Daniel, she called for the fifth time in 15 minutes. Daniel, a recent St. Petersburg University graduate, was hosting our after-hours party at his cozy, run-down, second-floor crash pad near the popular Nevsky Prospect District. The ceilings of the old apartment were tall and grimy, empty beer bottles lined the table, and anti-hangover tea boiled on the living room hot plate. The old Soviet-era wallpaper was covered with magic marker graffiti, some of which was our own. Daniel appeared at the door with his usual ironic grin, and Natasha spoke to him for a few moments. Natasha wants to know who I remind you of, he said to me. What famous person do I resemble? I gave Daniel a close look. He was tall and baby-faced with narrow shoulders and a curly mop of blonde hair. You look kind of like a young Judge Reinhold, I said. He's an American actor. Daniel translated and then laughed at Natasha's response. She says you're wrong. Apparently, I look like Von Kotzebue. Who's Von Kotzebue, I asked. Uh, I have no idea, he said. He checked for a moment with Natasha. Apparently, it's not just von Ketzebue, but August Frederick Ferdinand von Ketzebue. Natasha said he was an unimportant German playwright who worked in the Russian state service 200 years ago. He paused, laughing as Natasha gave him the final details. Natasha says his plays were superficial and he was assassinated as a reactionary. I shook my head in admiration. I envy Natasha's talent for making really weird illusions, I said, but I think it's better to compare yourself to a movie star. Enthused, Daniel had me write down Judge Reinhold before going back inside his apartment. Five minutes later, Natasha had another epiphany and called Daniel back out onto the balcony. Natasha says we must buy American sausages, he translated. She says she has something very important to show you. A miracle. What kind of miracle? She won't say, Daniel said. She says we need to get the American sausages first. 
figuring it foolish to pass up on any miraculous pre-dawn demonstration involving a professional librarian and processed meat, I gave my consent. And please have your cousin come with us, Daniel added. My cousin Dan, a 23-year-old ex-linebacker who'd recently graduated from a University of Kansas literature program, had been treated like a rock star ever since I let it slip to the Russians that he'd once had dinner with William S. Burroughs. Quiet and understated by nature, Dan insisted that he'd merely sat down with Burroughs at a large social gathering several years ago, but our Russian friends would have nothing of his humility. Natasha had already demanded an autograph. Once we'd corralled Dan, we headed down the stairs into the pre-dawn streets of St. Petersburg, ready for any miracles that came our way. The final leg of my Beijing to St. Petersburg train journey had been simple. Dan and I boarded the midnight train at Moscow, curled into our upper berths like a couple of cosmonauts, and woke up in St. Petersburg. We walked out of the train station into a fantastic vision of stately old buildings, curving canals, and sunshine. It wasn't until that evening that we realized our St. Petersburg arrival had coincided with the rocket-propelled grenade assassination of a local oil baron. According to news reports, his armored Chevy Blazer had been blown to bits on the university embankment in broad daylight. Before this incident, I had almost forgotten Russia's growing reputation as a place of near-anarchy. As a tourist, it's difficult to determine just how far corruption-tainted Russia has unraveled. Ironically, Moscow, a city which has come to represent the oligarchical excesses of the new Russia, was a beautiful place to spend a few days after my 81-hour train ride from Irkutsk. Thanks in part to renovations spearheaded by the city's free-spending maverick of a mayor, Moscow's tourist areas looked clean and majestic and brand new. The park areas around the Kremlin were peaceful and romantic, a vision of old statues and young couples, war memorials, and pizza stands. Old Arbot Street was brimming with street performers and international restaurants. And even the old underground metro stations had a retro charm. Riding the steep, double-speed elevators down to catch my train, I couldn't help but think that the rounded, Stalin-era modern design flourishes made the place seem like the inside of a UFO. Of course, I didn't have to travel very far into Moscow's dreary suburbs for the futuristic illusions to be shattered, nor did I have to delve very far into newspaper to realize that Russia was in trouble. The economy had collapsed over a year before, and the national GDP was half of what it was in 1991. The life expectancy of a Moscow male had actually gone down over the decade. The IMF reserves were being stowed in offshore banks or disappearing entirely. Optimistic Western-led reforms had gone nowhere, war simmered in the Caucasus. Politically and economically, Russia's future didn't look so hot. Interestingly, however, the demographic most commonly associated with any country's future, the youth, seemed to be undergoing an eccentric renaissance when I was in Moscow. Nearly a decade after the advent of new freedoms, Russian youth culture was still blooming in every direction at once. Five decades of 20th century fashion coexisted simultaneously. Boys in tie-dyed muscle shirts held hands with teen girls in fluorescent orange miniskirts. Felt-hatted rude boys rubbed shoulders with nose-ringed riot girls. James Dean leather jackets competed with Don Johnson summer suits. Metalheads and motorheads shared beers with skinheads and deadheads. Amidst this vivid melange of youth culture, I found a curious absence of despair. Admittedly, three nights in Moscow discos and grunge bars hardly qualify me to analyze, but I found the Russian teens and young adults to be no gloomier than their American counterparts. Furthermore, compared to the fashionable angst that seized American youth culture in the early 1990s, the Russian expression of pessimism I did see seemed downright optimistic. 
Perhaps those who sing No Future the loudest are those who can be sure the lyric doesn't actually apply to them. Late in the night, following my last full day in Moscow, I was returning to my homestay from a disco near Red Square when I saw two teenaged boys standing under the Trinity Tower of the Kremlin, hollering their lungs out. As I got closer, I could make out what they were saying. Boris Yeltsin! screamed the taller boy. Boris Yeltsin! screamed the other boy. Taking turns and yelling without discernible rhythm, the boys intoned their president's name over and over again, stopping only to double over in laughter. Amused, I watched their spectacle as I walked by, wondering if they were trying to make a statement or if they were just entertaining themselves. I wonder if there's any good way to discern those two activities. I wondered if the boys knew where Boris Yeltsin was at that moment or if they just imagined him, as I did, staggering like a zombie through the nether corridors of the Kremlin, taking deep pulls from a bottle and drunkenly demanding a heart transplant. In the end, the only Russians I really interacted with for any period of time were Daniel and Natasha. Dan and I first met them at the Money Honey, a rockabilly club a couple of blocks over from Nevsky Prospect in St. Petersburg. The club was packed when we arrived at 8 p.m., and we were forced to share a table in the back with a half dozen Russians. Now, by traditional club standards, the money honey wasn't much to look at. Its interior was bland, and its clientele was a bit frumpy and middle class. And I was almost beginning to wonder what the sold-out appeal of the place was when a band took the stage and started to crank out Elvis covers. Suddenly, a room full of frumpy people rushed the dance floor and, in the truest sense that I've ever witnessed personally, went apeshit. Our table emptied in seconds, and the pale, thin-lipped woman to my right took me with her. My rockabilly swing steps were decidedly clumsy, but so were everyone else's. A room of people gyrated with uninhibited anti-hipster abandon, spastic and ecstatic. It was frightening and wonderful. It wasn't until after the first set that we all returned to the table and I found out who I was dancing with. This is Natasha, said the mop-haired guy who later introduced himself as Daniel. She says she can't decide whether or not you look intelligent. She wants to know if you read books. Of course I read books, I said. She says that when someone like you is left on his own without a book, he will instantly become lost. What does that mean? Daniel clarified for a moment. Uh, She wasn't really saying that, he said. She was quoting Dostoevsky, and that was supposed to be a joke. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I guess I didn't get it. Well, she's very serious about books. She's a librarian. All the women at this table are librarians. I took a good look at Natasha and the two other women at the table. After having seen their antics on the dance floor, I could hardly envision any of them shelving books. What are they, I said jestfully. Hell's Librarians? Daniel translated and Natasha grinned. She likes the name Hell's Librarians, Daniel said. It's like Hell's Angels. That's a Hunter S. Thompson word, yes? Well, he didn't coin the term, I said. He just wrote about them. But yeah, they're a motorcycle gang. Yes, of course, but Natasha doesn't ride motorcycles. She reads books, and Hunter S. Thompson is very popular in Russia. His Las Vegas book is a bestseller these days. Still? Wow, that's, that's a pretty old book. Yes, but it was only recently translated into Russian. Many older American books are just now being translated. Have you heard of William S. Burroughs? Of course, he lived the last years of his life not far from where I grew up. My cousin had dinner with him about three or four years ago. Wow, I wish I could meet your cousin. You're sitting at the table with him, I said, pointing at Dan. Daniel looked over at Dan in amazement and said something in Russian to the librarians. Their chatter stopped and they all swerved in Dan's direction. My quiet cousin was the star of the table for the rest of the evening. Many hours later, long after the money honey had closed, I stood outside a kiosk with Dan and Daniel as Natasha shopped for her miracle wieners. Do you know what this miracle is all about, I asked Daniel. Daniel shrugged. Cheap happiness, he said. 
he paused and then grinned, or maybe noble suffering. Seeing my lack of reaction, he went on. That was another Dostoevsky joke, he said. Natasha does them better than me. He wrote Crime and Punishment in this neighborhood, you know. Seriously, or is that a joke too? No, it's true. I could show you his old apartment if you want. It's very near my street. So if Dostoevsky is your neighbor, why do you all get so excited about someone like William S. Burroughs? Daniel thought for a moment. That's a good question. I guess it's because he's not our neighbor. I decided it was now or never to ask a question that had been bugging me. What do you think of the future here, Daniel? In Russia? Daniel sighed. The future will be the future. I like right now. It's 1999. In only a few years, that will sound very old. 1999. In a few years, nobody will think about right now, so I won't think about the future. That's fair, isn't it? Natasha came out of the kiosk with a package of wieners and a sly smile. Daniel interpreted as she performed her miracle. Natasha took out a wiener. Does the worm have a soul, she asked us, holding the wiener in front of her. That's not a worm, I said. Yeah, but does the worm have a soul? I don't know, I said. Let's say it does. Natasha broke the wiener in half. Now we have two worms. Where's the soul? Where did it go? Which side is the soul in? I thought for a moment. Well, I'd say the soul divides as the worm does. You get two souls. Natasha smiled and tore the wiener into four pieces. And if I divide these again? Well, now I guess you get four souls. Then this is the miracle, she said. I have created three new souls. She triumphantly held the ragged bits of wiener up from my inspection. There are some times in life when you're too tired and baffled and amused to do anything but laugh out loud. I will never be able to categorize that moment, standing in St. Petersburg at 5 a.m. with a Russian librarian who proved she was God by destroying a hot dog, but I think the real miracle was the silly set of odds that put me in that spot after 5,000 miles in two continents. The four of us stood there and giggled like children in front of the kiosk. I never got another chance to kiss Natasha. We ate the rest of the wieners on the way back to the apartment, and I fell asleep sitting in one of Daniel's easy chairs almost as soon as we'd arrived. What was left of the party went on without me, but I don't regret missing it. After all, it was nearly dawn, and I'd traveled a long way to get there. Alright, as promised, I'm now going to share some audio endnotes that shed some light on the story behind the story I just read. Joining me is Jonathan Arlen, a writer and recent trans-Siberian traveler who will be interviewed at greater length in tomorrow's episode. Among the things discussed are the strategies I employed in writing the story, the way I chose to portray myself in the story, and the reasons why I didn't include it in my second book, Marco Polo Didn't Go There. I start by reflecting on how I can at times come off as kind of a jackass in the story. Here goes. I guess we always reduce ourselves to the size of a character when we write a story. Um, and it was interesting to see how the younger Rolf in this story is a little bit of a jackass. When I'm having an argument with these Providnitsas, in, in, in retrospect, uh, I feel like a jackass. And I know, are you familiar with William Dalrymple, the travel writer? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, he talks sometimes about being slightly embarrassed about the, the character he was in, in Xanadu, which was his first book. Right, um, right. Uh, and he's, he's on a bus trip, I think, you know, sort of through the Middle East um, or through yeah. Asia. Through uh, Asia, yeah. yeah. And I think he was 18 when he literally took that. Um, but he says that even though he was sort of – he sort of feels like a jackass in retrospect. It's what people want – him to read the most at public events. So, uh, <laughs> actually, funny you mention that book. I think about that book all the time because 
and I, I've only read, I read it one time and I read it a few years ago and I really don't remember it that well, but I remember coming away from it thinking that, uh, the author complains a lot and is sort of a jackass, but that I really enjoyed all, all, all of it. You know, it's like a really enjoyable, uh, book and it sort of, uh, gives you license as a writer to complain and be a jackass. At least that's that's how I tend to think about it. <laughs> yeah, you can show your ragged edges, and and I think it's a way. Yeah. I think if I would have shown my ragged edges in this way in the Twitter era, I probably would have gotten flamed. You know, um, <laughs> people would. I mean, did you did you feel like the Rolf character was sort of a dick sometimes in this story? Or honestly, no, I didn't get that impression. But I but I thought that it was a more sort of youthful or uh, I guess wild voice than than a lot of your other stuff that I'm familiar with. Um, you definitely seem young in this story. Yeah, yeah. Actually, a lot of stories I end up sort of talking about girls or young women, and, and there's some longing in it. And actually, there's some there's some kissing of a Russian girl in this story. And so it's funny. It's just probably something that I wouldn't fixate on or even include in a story now. But it was it was very much a part of the dynamic of the story then. So it is it is a younger Rolf. I mean, David Foster Wallace has called this the asshole problem, the idea of trying to to uh, make yourself a character and and sort of have a critical depiction of a place or a nuanced depiction of the place without seeming like you're passing judgment on it. Sure. And yeah. so I, I think I was leaving myself open to be a jackass just to sort of show, just to sort of say, dear reader, you know, I'm not perfect. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm this, this fool sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's much easier to read as a reader to read that than uh, the other, you know, the other side, which would be somebody sort of talking down, down to the reader and you know acting like they uh, know everything about the the place that they're in or um that they have this you know perfect perfect life in travel which is never really the case yeah yeah i i, I think in this age too like writing self-protectively again i, I think sure. it might be hard sometimes to to let your balls hang too much again in the twitter age when somebody can take one little aspect of your story and hammer you for it um and so, like the do you, think, do you think you would be hammered for parts of this story? It's hard to say. You know, like I was pretty hard on the Providnitsas, but so, <laughs> sort of in a way that I was letting them off the hook. You know, that I was sort of ramping up my jackassedness because it would actually be worse if I was just sort of a dour person who's judging yeah. these mean Russian women. Um, <laughs> but I, I think I would get hammered just because they're they're females. You know, they're they're women and. Um, yeah. interestingly, you know, when I'm in first class, I don't complain about the Providnitsas. Um, but in, in this particular situation, I think I sort of gave myself permission to be a little harsh about the Providnitsas by casting myself as sort of a dick. But, um, were you aware at the time that you were writing this of their reputation for being, uh, real hard asses? I don't think so. If I, if I was, I have forgotten. So is that the case? Providnitsas are, are, um, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. for sure. Yeah. 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 It's one of the things that, you know, anyone who's who's been on the trains recently will warn you about. Hmm. It's, you know, to get on their good side, at least, because they can make your life miserable. Yeah. Uh, when you're on the train. I, yeah, I, I, I think that's debatable. But yeah, 
I've heard, I heard that for sure. Well, I speculate in this story that it's possible it's, that missing the train was in part because the Provenitsas didn't like us. So, um, <laughs> and, and all these years later, I've probably forgotten about that sort of thing too. And, and so maybe I come off as a dick to myself in a way that I don't come off as a dick to someone like you who's been on the train recently. Um, uh, number two is sort of a subset of this, the authorial voice. I was just sort of, there's a lot of Kansas in this story. Um, mm-hmm. In part because I'm I'm traveling with my cousin from Kansas, um, and a lot of wordplay and biblical analogies and and other things that I uh, I don't know if you, if the language uh, struck you in certain places, but um, there's probably some metaphors I was writing and and sort of playfulness with language that may have been semi purple that I wouldn't do now. So, huh? No, it didn't. Uh, it didn't stri- strike me like that at all when I was reading it. At least when I was reading it. Uh again uh for this it seemed more it, it it just seemed longer it seemed much longer than what i'm used to reading from from you it seemed like there was a lot going on in this in this story uh it was really complicated the, the third thing i came uh that struck me about this piece is i think something that also struck you is that at a certain point i sort of go meta sort of part four of the story and just sort of talk about the romance versus the reality, you know, that so many writers who've gone before me have sort of had to grab onto things because my conclusion is that it's so long and it's so uneventful at times that you have to find ways to tell stories. I mean, right. Yeah. Yeah. You, you point out at some point that you, you point out the other uh, people who have written about the Trans-Siberian who will look out the window and talk about a city you know, what's, what's, whatever is that city is famous for as they're going through it without ever actually getting off the train and going into that, that city. And that is so many accounts of the Trans-Siberian is essentially all of the really interesting, all of the really interesting things that you're passing through, um, but that you don't actually have any personal experience with, um, because you sort of have to, there's not enough uh, going on on the train to keep the story contained. Well, yeah, and that's sort of the 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 catch twenty two of trying to write about the train is that it's moving. Yeah. You know that yeah. you could write about all the cities along the along its route, and then that could be an interesting book. But um, the fact that it's moving, it, you know, it just ceases to be a train trip once it once it becomes sort of a social history of the trains along of along its route. It becomes a, it's not a travel story anymore. Yeah, um, exactly. And that's that's what some of the more famous Trans Siberian books fall into for sure okay uh, and yeah. not that they're you know not that they're bad books at all they're they're really interesting but um they they sort of get off the train as often as possible and and one tricky thing about this section for me i, I think i was 28 when i wrote this is that in sort of making fun of that technique i also slip a lot of my own information in you know that i yeah that i i sort of i sort of trojan horse some of this geographical and cultural information in by talking about how other people sneak it in. So, yeah. And, and it's, it's sort of a, a quietly, a really deeply researched piece too. Like it, it took me a while to realize how much research probably went into this um, because so much of the story moves um, with dialogue. Yeah. Well, that the- you don't notice quite how much research is going on and how much backstory and information is, is being presented. Yeah. I think that's, that's also part of the structure in that, um, 
I'll, I'll sort of set up a scene and then I'll depart from the scene and come back to it. And when I depart from the scene, I bring in some of that history. Um, mm-hmm. And actually, part four is the quotes and dialogue. I was surprised on returning this story how long some of the dialogues are and how goofy they are. Um, <laughs> and and just how how much of a role dialogue plays in this story. I don't know if I don't know if it seemed very dialogue heavy to you. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Very dialogue heavy. But it, yeah. But in a in a way. I don't know. Did I, I think I remember you telling me at some point that you had some reservations about how much dialogue was in it or, or the, the kind of dialogue that was in it. Um, do yeah. you remember that? Yeah, yeah. Well, one thing is that dialogue, even people who've really tried to, even hard journalists will talk about dialogue is always fudged a little bit that you can't just put in a transcription of what was said or it just becomes incoherent and unreadable. Um, like the way we talk in real life is just not, doesn't lend itself to the page. You have to condense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting how, like, I had a long conversation with a drunk guy in Mongolia. Um, and that's really condensed through several, through several incidents, I think. And then actually the Monica stuff, but that was very honest to the real situation. A- actually, it's the, the dialogue that eventually sort of turned me against putting this in Marco Polo was at the very end. It was with Daniel. So Daniel is the one who took issue. Uh, the, the Russian guy in St. Petersburg Berg took issue with how he and Natasha were depicted. In a way, it makes sense is that I was able to take very, very careful notes throughout the whole train trip. But in St. Petersburg, yeah. I was just partying, had a blast with these crazy Russian people who I really liked. And yeah. then, then I had to recreate it. And so I think some of like the the specifics of the Dostoevsky quotes and sort of how that basically my conversation, the dialogue I wrote in the story with Daniel and Natasha was really constructed. Like it wasn't coming out of notebooks. It was really coming out of memory and trying to, I I know that they were both literary people, but it it probably in in retrospect, I probably would just would have shrugged it off and said, Daniel, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry, but this is how I remember it. But I liked Daniel so much. Like he was such a generous guy, such a generous host that I just felt bad. And so that sort of soured me on that section of the story. Now, 19 years later, it really feels true to how I felt during that yeah. time in St. Petersburg. Yeah. What What was his issue? Can you Can you say? <laughs> uh, well, actually, his issue was it, it's also like 18 years old. And I think he just said he didn't like how he was portrayed. Um, and I think part of it could have been just my newness as a travel writer. I think when you, when you depict other people, people are always going to be a little disgruntled by how they were depicted. There's this guilt that's about as old as the story itself about that section of the story that may not even be necessary, but it really influenced the fact that I didn't include it in Marco Polo didn't go there. Have you reached out to uh, Daniel in the last 20 years to see if he's changed his, his mind on this story? No, it's one of those things where you switch from Hotmail to Gmail or whatever, and, and you sort of lose all those conversations. Yeah. I would be really curious to to know what, what he thinks now of it. I mean, it's been so long. And as a reader who's who's not personally familiar with, you know, whatever you guys actually did or talked about at the time, uh, I can't think of anything that comes across as I don't know unflattering or or even unrealistic about that that character in the story. Yeah, yeah, I I think maybe he just 
it, it rang false to him just because it was a late night and his experience was different than my experience. Um, yeah. Actually, Daniel gets the best line in the story. I ask him about the future and he talks about how it's not going to be too long before 1999 sounds really weird and you're not going to think about it anymore. And of course, now it's 2018 and, and 1999 is a long time ago. So, Yeah, it's actually a really touching um, line in the story. Um, I'm not sure why he wouldn't want to take credit for that. Yeah, well, Daniel, if you're out there, I love you, man. And uh, I hope that all these years later, uh, you take the story well. When you sat down to write this story, were you trying to write a funny trans-Siberian story? Because it's a really funny story. I mean, and, and I think it's probably one of your funniest travel stories that, that I've read that I can think of. I was, and it and it had a more... I All of my stories had a more explicitly humorous voice back then, um, uh-huh. which is another thing I sort of miss about that, that style of writing. I was just a little bit more fly-by-the-seat-of-my-pants and, and fearless when it came to depicting things in a humorous way and actually this was a pretty well-loved story i remember like my people loved monica people loved this this mongolian woman who was just basically the toughest person in the story and sort of telling us how how it was um well the the first half of the story is so um well it's so unusual in a trans-siberian story because it doesn't have that much to do with the trans-siberian itself right um you know, you don't even mention getting out of Beijing or um, getting to Mongolia. You sort of start in Mongolia, which is which is funny in and of itself. Um, but but yeah, there's so many sort of funny little characters that show up in the first half of this story um, that I liked a lot. That that made me think that this was a that yeah that, that this was something you set out to write in a in a kind of funny way. Yeah, well, I, I know that I had to sit and think on it for a while because the trip happened in July, but I think it may have been October or November before I finished writing it. Um, okay. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that too. And I think I was in Kansas when I finished writing it, which could have influenced why a lot of Kansas ended up sneaking into the story. Um, and, yeah. And that also accounts for how deeply researched it was that I was able to to call on American libraries. Um and that that was an ongoing problem during this part of my career in that I was traveling full time yet trying to write a column for Salon every two weeks. And I was always late with the column. But um, part of it was perfectionism on my yeah. part that I just wanted to get yeah. the story right. And so so this was a collection of authorial choices. For whatever reason, I decided to start it in Mongolia and not do the typical station to station Trans-Siberian. Right. But but sort of follow these absurd characters. And, and another interesting aside is that I knew about this trip because my friend Brian Hartenstein had taken it maybe two years before, and he'd gotten left behind by the train too. He like he didn't he didn't take uh, he didn't have a stop in Irkutsk, but there was some stop, and he was able to jump in Lake Baikal, and mm-hmm. um, the train left while he was swimming in Lake Baikal, and so he had to fly from Irkutsk to. I'm, I'm not sure, Ulan-Uday or Novosibirsk or something. And so I remember as I started the trip thinking, oh, well, this would be an easy story to tell if I was left behind the train like Brian was. And so I didn't get, se- I didn't set out to get left behind by the train, but it happened in a different set yeah. of circumstances. Uh, and I, it, it almost seems like you got really lucky in how, um, in how sort of crazy the first part of this trip was rather than it being a, a normal train trip, you, you know, it would have just been a lot longer. But um, so many sort of crazy things happened in the first half of it uh, that, that 
yeah, it's, it seems like you kind of got lucky. Yeah, I was able to sidestep some of those cliches, I think, because there was these sort of weird characters in Mongolia There was getting left behind by the train in in uh, on the border between Russia and Mongolia. And then that, that was three of the five segments. And so then number four is sort of this meta commentary and then just all of these other absurd characters, these elder hostile people. And mm-hmm. then... Um, and then, uh, then the last part was partying in St. Petersburg. So really, the only piece that was really about the train is part four. Is the the the, the meta commentary about the train is yeah. is sort of the anchor of these other stories about these young people in St. Petersburg or the Provodnitsas and getting left behind with these two English guys or these eccentrics that I met in Mongolia. And so uh, I'm not sure how intentional that was, but I think I was just trying to tell the story that I had experienced. And I was sort of uninspired by a lot of the Trans-Siberian writing I'd met, and so I ended up with this this goofy, this goofy story that probably should have been in Marco Polo didn't go there. So. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including links to my book Marco Polo Didn't Go There, as well as the print version of my Trans-Siberian essay, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Justin Glow. Cedar Van Tassel does the music. Jan Futterman does the show notes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts.